there's an ancient story in the suttas about a group of people called the Kalamas. And they came from a certain area of India that was called by the same name, uh, the Kalama area or town or city. And it was a town that was situated where there were great people, great many people traveling in that area. So there, had, there were a lot of visitors, sages, uh, holy men and women, people who talked about their practice, about what they believed in. And there were many uh, reports from the Kalamas to the Buddha that they were confused. They didn't know who to believe. There were so many contradictions in, in the ways one, one person would explain something, then another person would explain something completely different, and they didn't know who to believe. So the Buddha's reply to the Kalamas was like this. He said, do not believe anything because it's mere hearsay or because the tradition existed for many thousands of years and it was handed down for many generations even, or because many people spoke of it, even of your family and your clans people, your clansmen, or because it's been written in ancient texts uh, known by that area or by that people for many, many years. Or there has been testimony of some great sage that everyone is enthralled about, or any authority at all that's kind of putting out some kind of idea or understanding. The Buddha said, don't even believe me unless it's tested by your own investigation, by your own practice. When you find that it agrees with your own deep experience, then and then only practice that. When you believe and you see that it's conducive to the good of one and all, that it benefits not only yourself but all beings, then shape your life in accord with that. Shape your life in accord with that. So that's what we're doing here when we come to practice. We're handing down to you what we believe and understand to be truthful through our experience. We don't hand down anything to you that really hasn't been experienced by us. And if we're saying anything that isn't in accord with our experience, we actually confess that to you, that we don't know whether that's true or not. But this is what it is it is said to us. This is what our teachers say to us. We've heard from uh, the beginning of our own practice the words ehi pasiko, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. I remember when I was younger in the Dharma, I would question Manindraji and say, I don't know about that. I don't know if I really agree with that at all. And he would actually welcome that kind of um, response to whatever was said. Of course, I was, I was always respectful. I don't remember a time that I wasn't. But I would feel free enough to say, I'm not sure about that. 
because I haven't experienced it yet. And he would say, that's good. And even Seda Upandita would say, sadhu, 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 that's well said. If you haven't experienced it yet, then you can't totally agree with it yet. Come and see for yourself, ehi pasiko. Don't believe what anybody else says, even if it comes from somebody you greatly respect. Mostly people we greatly respect along the way are teachers who say to us, investigate, investigate, look, look into your own life, read the book of your own hearts and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. So tonight I'd like to offer you some reflections on faith and to reflect also on the quality of faith that you may have in your own practice, in yourselves, in what you have agreed to open to, simply because you're here. We want to reflect on it so we can tune into that inner quality that supports our practice. Because faith is a, a strong quality for each one of us. It helps us to keep taking that next step along the way and to have so much faith in what we see in our own practice experientially that we can take that next step with confidence and not because we're just being urged. We might be urged to take those steps and to see for ourselves whether it brings deeper realizations. But the most important thing is that we're seeing for ourselves that it does. Each of us are here already because we have some degree of faith. Um, so we're not totally lacking in it. We've experienced mostly that the teachings of the Buddha are true. We've experienced that we can rely on them. They're worthy of taking the time and energy to spend this amount of time and energy here at this retreat. And in other times, we've taken up reading, taking classes, listening to others about it, seeing what their experience is, and seeing how we can tune into that for ourselves. The teachings of the Buddha are basically very simple. And you can see that they can be divided into these general categories. Mainly, they're to develop goodwill. That's the basic uh, foundation that we develop from, to develop goodwill in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our actions. And the second uh, area that we can see the teachings divided into are to relinquish ill will, to let go of those places that cause us harm and cause others harm. So we do that through being really honest with ourselves and through the practice of uh, vipassana, seeing clearly things that are happening in our own hearts, seeing how it goes in the world as well, and seeing the harm that's in the world because of the ill will that's in the world. Just actually seeing that with such clarity, and not because it's judgmental, but because there's discernment in our own hearts. And both of those are the sturdy foundation 
and platform from which deep understanding can come. And so this is the third area that the Buddha's teachings are divided into. The development of the mind in calm, concentration, clarity, and understanding. And all of these come from the practices of tranquilizing the mind, calming the mind, developing a mindful attention through vipassana. So we're, we're investigating through these means. We have some heart-based intelligence already that this path of practice benefits us. We see the results in our own experience. We don't have to be on the path of practice very long before we see the results in ourselves and in others. A lot of the times we are drawn to the path not just because we ourselves are suffering, but because we've seen that others have suffered and then they, they join a certain path of practice, they start actually putting their energy and time into it, and we see from them that they're more peaceful, they're in a way more content with their lives, and accepting life as it is with a great deal of inner calm and that quiet joy that isn't exactly laughing about life all the time, but there's a kind of that smile of the Buddha that can be on one's face, even when times get shaky. So of course, there can be shaky times in our practice, in our lives. We can be on tender hooks, feel very vulnerable and foggy sometimes. But we know that will pass through our own faith in understanding uh, the deep insights that we get from the Dharma. When the fog clears, we know we can trust our practice. So this is faith. It's said that the characteristic of faith is trusting. Sometimes. We trust ourselves, which is the very basic thing about faith, a, very, a place where we need to come from over and over again. Sometimes we need to put our trust in others, those we have great belief in, in people that have gone through the practice already, and we see that they're a little ahead of us, maybe, or way ahead of us. We can trust them. Sometimes we just trust the teachings. We see some simple teachings of the Dhamma are so true that we can just fall back on them, rest on them. So the characteristic of faith is trusting. The word in Pali that, that, that represents faith is sada, S-A-D-D-H-A. That's the word in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were uh, uh, developed in, were trusted to go forth in time in. That word sada means to establish trust, to establish trust. So it's not just this blind faith that the Kalamas were asking the Buddha about, you know, in the very beginning of my talk, where they were asking the Buddha, should we just have blind faith in all these people that come through? 
And the Buddha said, no, you must really establish trust, really in three areas of your practice. First, in yourself, that you have the ability to investigate what needs to be investigated. And basically, that's our own minds and bodies and hearts, what's going on there and the relationship between all of those. The Buddha said that in this fathom-long body, the whole truth of the existence of reality or the reality of existence can be revealed in this fathom-long body. And that included the mind as well. So some years ago, um, I, I've told this story about how I decided to realize one of my very long-held aspirations. I had this aspiration since I was a, a teenager, um, and maybe even younger than my teens, that I wanted to be a monastic of some sort. And perhaps it was a kind of a holdover from a past life that wasn't finished up. I'm getting Sometimes I get vestiges of that in my kind of what I see in the past sometimes. And that time when I realized it, I was um, growing up in the Catholic tradition. And when I came to the Buddhist tradition, I realized that I, uh, what I wanted to practice again was doing this practice in the form of a nun, a Buddhist nun, to um, go to that very, that very deep place of renunciation by renouncing the, the kind of complications that are in life because of just having to attend to so many things, having to make so many decisions. I was just telling Steve today, I uh, went for a walk by myself, and when I came back, and during the walk, I was telling him that I realized that maybe some of what's holding me back, in a way, from um, really letting go completely, is that is actually teaching. Because <laughs> I, I realize I have to figure out: is my is my robe dropping on the floor? Is you know. <laughs> Are my, do I have holes in my socks? Is my hair combed? You know, when I go into the hall, all, all these things that, when I was a nun, I, I was so happy. It was one of the happiest times there was in my life when I ordained as a nun in this lifetime. And I just, I didn't have to have shampoo or conditioner, you know. <laughs> I didn't even have a comb. And somebody, you know, one of my nun friends, um, her name is Kamala, actually, Ma Kamala. She would come and shave my head, you know, and I would have so much joy just being in her hands and having my head in her hands and shaving my head and saying to me, Sister, how is your practice today, Sister? And I would, I would feel so free, and I'd have three robes to choose from. I used to only have two, but that got too complicated because one got dirty, then the next one got soiled, and I didn't have anything to wear, and I wouldn't be able to go out. So I decided, oh, maybe I should have three robes, you know. So it was just so simple, 
it was such a simple life, and in some ways I long for that, in some ways I dread it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I still like nice things, but um, <laughs> I'm sure he made a face. Um, <laughs> But it's that simplicity of life that uh, really we long for, don't we? I mean, we come here and we practice this renunciation of just letting go of so many needs. And it's so beautiful. Just walking down the path here, I, I just could hear the birds sing and hear the trees rustle. And it's so quiet and I felt so grateful that the forest was growing. And I felt so happy for each one of you. I know you have to be with your minds as well, as much as I'm with mine. But, um, you know, just to have this kind of simplicity of life and this, this level of renunciation. So I wanted to take that level of renunciation and ordain as a nun and to practice under the guidance of my, my beloved preceptor, Seido Upandita. Been very strict and uh, very demanding, but no one else in my life requires me to jump those hoops and um, through those hoops, and I appreciate that I have that. Somehow during that time I could trust that faith was pointing me in a direction that hadn't been there in the past, before. It was pointing in a direction of more letting go, more renunciation, a stronger devotion to letting go of the deep roots of suffering. And of course, I faced a lot of those roots already and weakened some of them, but really letting go in, in a much deeper way. It's said that those aspirations that come out of that deep faith that each one of you have in your own way can point one's life in a new direction if we're awake to it, if we really see that this is hard because it's pointing to um, a terrain in a direction that we've never experienced before. So it can bring out some fear, some trepidation, some feeling of helplessness in our own hearts. So this is perfectly normal. It gives us a greater, uh, we know that it's going to give us a greater alignment with the truth of how things really are. Instead of living on old truths that we just kind of take in over and over again and agree with. But what about this thing of taking in new truths and seeing how things are new in, in ways that we've never seen before. It's kind of scary, but it's so wonderful to do that. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just get tired of learning the same things over and over again. And maybe we say, oh, we've got to learn this again and again because it hasn't been learned yet. But maybe enough is enough. And maybe when we learn something new, just that new little learning can wipe out all the things, or a lot of the things that we've been going over and over again in our minds. So in a way we can say faith is like a spiritual compass. It points us in a new direction of life. So at that time when I decided to ordain as a nun, 
for the first time in this lifetime, I went to that forest uh, center in um, Burma, the, the center of my teacher, and uh, I went to pay respects to the teacher. Steve and I were together, and there are certain formalities. And during that uh, time, after the formalities, he asked me very forthrightly, why are you here? He doesn't waste any time, you know, in saying, how have you been? And he just says, why are you here? And so I appreciate that. And I said, I'm here, I'm here to clean my heart. It was just straight out, just like that. And he knew that, hmm, yeah, that's what you're here for. And he knew that, because he'd been with me in my practice for many years before that, he knew that it was like more of a cleansing. It, it was a, another step in the, in the kind of purification process. So his reply was, and these were almost his exact words, you must invest everything you have in your practice. You must invest everything you have in your practice. And I know that didn't mean, you know, what I have as a material resource, but it meant everything I had as a spiritual resource. Everything that was in me that I had learned from all the, the ways that, you know, I had to jump through the hoops of fire and um, jump over the, you know, the high bars that were, were offered to us as practice. So my heart was willing to venture beyond what was already known, what was already experienced, and to open to new terrain, never navigated before. And maybe it, it wasn't so big of a deal, but nevertheless, it was new terrain. And so I know that it must be true what he was saying, that I must be able to acknowledge and recognize the strengths in my own heart in order to do that. And I might say that every single time I've gone to practice, I've had to realize that, to actually invest everything I have in the practice at that particular retreat. It wasn't just this retreat, but he happened to say it at that retreat. And I remember the, the very first retreat I attended with him a long time ago, he said that to all of us, he said, you don't know what life will bring. This may be, this was, that was my first long retreat. And he said, this may be your very last retreat. So do the best you can. Don't, um, don't waver. Don't fritter your time away. Use your time wisely when you're here. And so the strength I needed to have was to be able to be, to have a continuity in my practice. That was the thing that is mostly um, brought out to us in, and that's why we're reminding you of it during this time. It's not that rigid continuity, as I was saying, that makes you feel like you're in a straitjacket, but it's that gentle continuity, moment to moment. I was reading about um, the beautiful qualities of the Buddha today, and one of the qualities was um, anusati, 
anusati. And sati means mindfulness. And anu, N-A-N-U, means continual mindfulness. I never knew that before. And that was one of the beautiful qualities of the Buddha, just having this persistent mindfulness, moment to moment, sometimes general, sometimes very precise. So recognizing the strengths that we have, this ability, maybe this willingness to bring that continuity to our practice, whatever it is for you now, can we step up a little bit uh, more from that? And the other strengths, compassion for ourselves, the ability to see when we're suffering and to kind of give ourselves a little more space, equanimity, things that we learn about in our practice, just seeing things as they are and not reacting to them. Of course, loving kindness, being gentle with ourselves and others. Um, That includes not being so judgmental about ourselves. So a lot of qualities like patience as well, letting go, resolution, renunciation. To invest them and bring them forth in our practice. A lot of our faith comes from having the confidence uh, to actually admit to ourselves these beautiful qualities of mind that already exist. So even though I was aware of the limitations of my own heart, I realized how it was so important not to let my thoughts about these limitations kind of wander down that rabbit hole where I would just get lost and not be able to see anything else but those limitations. I would get lost in self-doubt. So one of the things about faith that we need to remember about trusting ourselves, trusting the practice, is to recognize when there's self-doubt, to actually recognize it with mindfulness, and to take some time to recall the strengths of mind that we have to bring them up and to say that, okay, there's some doubt here about whether I can do this, but what else exists that maybe can't be seen so clearly right now, but we know by remembering that we're we're able to keep going, we're able to take that next step, we're able to know that this too shall pass, or what, whatever else brings you confidence. To recognize without spiritual pride, but just in a very pragmatic way, what inner qualities support your practice now when there's doubt in the mind. Doubt will come up many, many times along the way in our practice. And sometimes the the greater, the deeper, the more profound the insight we're opening to, or the mind is opening to, the greater the doubt may be. Manindra, both Manindra and Upandita would say to me, oh, that's Mara. Mara is the tempter or the temptress that leads us away from our seat of practice, our stance of practice, that makes us believe that we can't do it, that there's these strong hindrances and defilements that 
pull us away from practice. So whenever I would see that self-doubt come up, I would remember Manindra saying, that's the biggest mara. Self-doubt is the biggest mara, the strongest mara. So it's, it's helpful during a time when you can sit down and just remember the qualities that you have in yourself. They're different for each one of us. What are the strong qualities of your own heart and mind that you tend to go back to over and over again and say, I can let this moment go and can let the new one come? Maybe it's that quality of letting go of just that previous moment. Or maybe it's a quality of that you can see the light ahead a little bit, the possibility for letting go, the possibility for patience. Or maybe you feel that softening in your heart about the compassion you have for the suffering in yourself or in the world. Those things may help you get through. So when you're here, take a little time to sit down and write those strengths that you have. Write them down. And don't go on and on about them because that'll take you away from your actual moment-to-moment experience. But just enough so that you can remember them during times of doubt in your practice. I remember for myself when one or several of those qualities wasn't so strong, some others would show up that I could trust that. Just for example, in that very time of practice, I'd like to, I like to tell the stories about practice because I know they relate to your own experiences and they're not just theory. Um, they actually happened and sometimes they continue to happen. There was a period of time in, in that particular retreat when I was going through, there was a lot of uh, review, life review, and in, in the recent, maybe 10 years before that, there was a, a review of being um, very betrayed by someone, in, uh, a woman in my life. It wasn't, wasn't a relative at all. And feeling very betrayed and spoken, spoken against and uh, having had rumors against that were untrue. And it was, it caused a lot of hurt in, in my heart and a lot of like closing down in my heart that played out over and over and over again. It was, it was very, very difficult. And I remember one time Upandita came up with this um, way of practice. I said, it comes out a lot in my walking practice. If things are a little looser in the walking practice so that memories come in. And there was, it was one of the rare times when it was like he didn't know exactly what to say. And um, he said, you know, every time you're taking a step, let that memory go into the ground. And I thought, wow, you never said that before. It, it, it must be, you know, that this one I'm going through is quite strong. So I would just, it would really help me. It was more a shamanic kind of a teaching, you know, to let the earth take it. Let the earth take it. Let the earth take it. And it really, really helped me get through. It was a way of letting go, a way of letting go. But another thing that helped me during that time was 
when I could let go a little bit, I would just feel the softening of compassion come into my own heart, of feeling how hurt I was, because it was more the betrayal that got to me, and, you know, the anger that would come up, not in a way that would, you know, overtly strike out, but just um, not being able to feel my own hurt in, in a very deep way. So then I, I really could feel that without getting lost in the hurt, but feeling the compassion for myself. And then I could open to more compassion for the other, feeling that person's, maybe that person's envy or jealousy or being threatened by me somehow. Somehow. So then I could trust. I, I couldn't trust the letting go, but I could trust the um, compassion more. I could trust the ability to see things the way they are more. And then through that, the hurt and betrayal could just go, just leave, just leave. So it's said that in our practice, we learn to establish trust and faith in three ways. I mentioned them before. In the teachings, in the teachers, including the Buddha, of course, and in oneself. And I started out talking about confidence or trust in oneself because that's a place we need to be really strong in all throughout our practice. The, tri- the place that haunts us the most is that particular place where we feel helpless, where we feel we can't go on, or we feel we're not doing good enough, or that you know we compare ourselves to stories we've heard. That's why I like to tell stories a lot of how it's been hard for me, because then you can really relate. <laughs> it's hard to relate to people who say they're enlightened. <laughs> so we need to stay in contact with um, trusting oneself. We need to stay in contact with that. Because that's a place where we come back to beyond trusting the teachings, beyond trusting the teacher. It's trusting oneself. That's where we need to develop more than anything. It requires opening and being aware of the hidden layers. Because a lot in our practice, if you're, I believe, when I'm not opening to hidden layers, I'm just kind of lollygagging. I'm kind of like on a, on a plateau. And just, I actually don't trust it when I'm enjoying the practice so much. You know, I, I like it when it's happening and I say, okay, I'm going to go with this for a while. But when it's too long, I say, there's, there's something about this, there's some attachment here, there's something going on where it's not, it's kind of avoiding the difficult, the new terrain to be open to. There's many hidden layers and vulnerable areas of the heart and the mind the habit patterns that bring a lot of pain and confusion and helplessness to ourselves and then, of course, to others as well. So it's important to open to all of that. And that's why we need so much trust in ourselves because this is a path of practice that opens all those doors, that shines a light into all those 
closets and to the attic and to the basement and the places that we don't go into a lot. It said that mindfulness is like a light that that light that lights the way into onto the path. And it sees the places that were dark that we haven't seen before. So it takes a lot of trust to do, do that and to know that we can do that in a gentle, balanced way, to learn that we can accept it, whatever we open to. We see over and over again that it's possible to enter into and to navigate places that are rough, that are difficult to get around or to get over, to get through. But when we do that, we actually get stronger. We actually gain confidence by being able to do that. And there's so many times, different times, when I would walk in to an interview with Say Seda Upandita, and he could tell just the way I was walking in that, you know, I was on shaky ground or tender hooks or very vulnerable. And uh, he would say in his English, get interviews every day, but I wasn't getting an interview every day. And there were a lot of students, and I said, Sayadawji, I want to have more time interview with you because when, my, when I practice with you, when I s- report to you, my practice is better. And he's, oh, I noticed that he just kind of got reared up a little bit and said something to the translator, and the translator said to me, Sayadaw says, do not say that. It's like, don't put your, your hope in me. And I got it right away. I said, OK. And uh, that was really, that was one uh, big verification to me that he really had faith in me, actually. It wasn't that he was denying me. It was more like he was having faith in me. It said that one of the functions of faith is to enter into, and in the ancient text from the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, that text it says, it's like setting out across a flood. And the Buddha likened the flood to be the defilements, you know, all the ways of greed, hatred, and delusion. And we, we use the word hindrances sometimes, but it's actually the defilements are much more than hindrances. Uh, 
there, it's, it's so much more um, defined than that. Like I said earlier, Steve has so many words to describe the hindrances. It's really amazing. <laughs> Mahasi Seydal said, of the defilements, he could name over a thousand, you know, in, in very great detail. So this is the flood sometimes that we're crossing. And I know you want to hear something else, but <laughs> that it's going to be a smooth sail. But there'd be no need to do this practice if it was going to be a smooth sail. There'd be no need to take this training. You, you, you just could go, go ahead and you know, set your sails and have fun. But it takes a lot of these understandings of having faith in oneself and knowing what it's like to cross a flood, knowing what it's like to take down your sails sometimes or steer your rudder in a different way. It's said that one of the functions is of faith is to overcome opposition. This too is in the ancient texts. To overcome opposition like fear and resistance, feelings of inadequacy. One of the functions of faith, the third function of faith, is to actually go through the experience so that one gains more confidence, so that one gains more, more faith. So there was a time when this opposition came when I was in that particular uh, retreat, uh, when I had ordained for the first time as a nun in this life. And um, the opposition came in these words. It was as if somebody was saying to me, you can't do this. You know, I was in, it was hot weather. I was going into the February time when it, all of a sudden from January to February turns really hot in Burma. And I was wearing three layers of robes and they were mostly um, polyester. And I was 54 years old, and I was at the height of menopause. So there was this outer heat and this inner heat, and I was like, um, I literally just sweat my butt off <laughs> during that retreat. And so I was getting lost in, in that resistance and that opposition that would say, you're too old to do this. And then I would really identify with that. It wouldn't be somebody outside, it would be myself that was saying, you know, that kind of identified self, I'm too old, I'm too old. That was like a little mantra that was playing to me. And I'm tired, I'm really tired. I, I would go from the one hall to the other hall, one practice hall to the eating hall, and I'd say, I can't do this, I'm tired, I can't walk another step, things like that, and get lost in it. And I would start actually saying, okay, just notice this, notice what's happening, note what's happening, tiredness, tiredness, complaining, complaining, judging, judging, things like that, to uh, actually notice with understanding what was going on in my own mind and heart. And 
There came a time I remember walking across a bridge on the way back from the dining hall and to my place where I was staying, my little hut, and I would say, I'm tired, I'm tired, and I thought, look at your body. Is the body tired? And I really took a look, and I, the body isn't tired. And so that was a revelation, but yet I'm saying, I'm tired, I'm tired. It, w- it was just this old mantra. And then I thought, well, the mind is tired. So I took a look at the mind, and as soon as I said, I'm tired, and the new moment would come up, that new moment would be so fresh. And I'd notice there was a freshness in that moment. There wasn't any tiredness in that moment. And I was continually believing an empty echo. Just over and over again, believing something that wasn't true. I, that's when I started to understand that there are so many empty echoes of the mind that just keep playing themselves out. And when we investigate them, we see they're not true at all. That was a revelation to me. So just as I saw that these hindrances, these defilements, take advantage of some opening where there was a gap in the continuity of mindfulness. That's why it's so important to have, even if the continuity of your mindfulness is just general, at least the mind is carrying that thread. And when it needs to pick up precision, it can. But if you, if you drop it all together, then you don't have that thread to pick up. You've lost it. You're looking for it in a, like looking for a needle in a haystack, where you have to develop it again. So keeping the thread of mindfulness going, keeping the continuity in a general way, in a precise way, it, you go through that in the day. You feel the strength of faith and confidence in yourself when you do this. And you, you know that uh, every experience is valuable, uh, whatever we open to. So be careful about the gaps that, again, uh, Upandita would say to us, as sometimes we be finished with our interview, we do our bows, we walk mindfully out the door, and we hear his voice in English, no gaps. And, and we would really have to, the precision with which we had to report it was so precise that you'd want there to be no gaps because you wanted to report something that was really precise and clear. So otherwise, the defilements will take advantage during those times when there's no either general or precise mindfulness in your practice. We, we just went through a retreat. Um, I did a little of it, and Steve was there organizing and being part of the retreat with Utejaniya in at IMS. And uh, I really appreciate a lot of the examples that Utejaniya gives. He's the one who's written the books that were put out there. Because he was uh, a layman and a shopkeeper, and he kind of knows the way of everyday life. And uh, he, he went to the the monastery since he was a young boy, um, and he, he had kind of like his surrogate dad 
father is one of the one of the greatest uh, Sayadaw's teachers in, in Burma, Shui uh, Yumin. And so he learned a lot from the time he was eight or nine years old. And so one of the analogies that Sayadaw uh, Utejaniya gave was that our practice, our heart should be like toll keepers at a gate on the highway of life. And he said that whenever the defilements pass through this gate on the highway of our heart, our life, like fear, resistance, helplessness, we should collect from them the toll. We should collect the value from them and not let them go by without collecting something from them. And he added uh, to that, whether they're a donkey or they're an SUV, we should, <laughs> we should still collect it collect from them the value, get the value out of that defilement. Otherwise, they're taking a toll from us. And isn't that true? I mean, we feel like spent. We feel like we can't go on when we believe that you're too old, you're not good enough. And then we start saying, yeah, So what about establishing trust in our teachers and in the teachings? What does that mean? I just want to tell you what it means traditionally and uh, in the countries where Buddhism uh, and the teachings of the Buddha really took root, where they, they are continuing to thrive, mostly Asian countries like human being that he said when somebody asked him if he was a god or a celestial being he answered no to those uh, questions and when he he answered truthfully he just said when they asked him who are you then what are you he said I am awake awake as a human being not as somebody some great being you know some other um, sphere of, of existence. He was a human being just like us. And he said, just like uh, I could experience these great insights, uh, liberating insights into life, so can all of you. And that's why he taught the, the Dharma. He offered the Dharma. So when we express our, our trust in that, when we take refuge, and maybe we, we just kind of repeat the words sometimes, but somehow deep inside us we may, we may know that there's a glimmer, there could be even a little, little glimmer of truth to that. We're, we're willing to believe it. 
in a way that allows us to investigate to see if it's really true or not. Maybe we don't believe it like the Buddhists in Asia do, um, but we believe it enough to try it out. Ehi pasiko, to come and see for ourselves. And to actually understand that there is the Dharma. And what we know of the Dharma, what has been offered by the many teachers that we have heard the Dharma from, when we practice it, we see that to the best of my understanding, it's true. We have borne out that when we practice metta, when we practice developing our hearts full of goodwill, that it works, that we can do that, we, that we can actually liberate the heart from ill will, at least temporarily, by practicing goodwill, that we can let go of ill will, we can let go of places that harm us and harm others, that we can actually have insights that liberate us from old views that have kept us in kind of a prison. We may recognize that there is a deep inner calling in us, or else we wouldn't be here. There's this deep calling that wants some relief from life. And somehow we have enough faith to keep trying, to keep uh, being devoted to that spiritual urgency that all of us have in our different ways different intensities and depths at different times. We may be very clear that our resolve is to realize what is beyond this conditioned existence. That may be clear to some of us. I know that that's very clear for Steve and I, that um, there's a great resolve for us to realize fully what it is to be beyond this conditioned existence. So those are different ways of expressing our trust in, in the Dharma. When we were um, younger, in younger days, there were stories about housewives and lay people that became enlightened. And um, the word enlightenment and, and the different paths of enlightenment were spoken about very freely. But I think because of so much striving in our Western civilization, striving for enlightenment and kind of being so um, leaning, leaning forward into it so much and kind of grasping for it, we, there was a, a little more of a backing off from, from that word. But during the time that the, when the Dharma first came to the West and to America in the 60s and the 70s, we heard about people like uh, Deepama, a relative of Manindraji, one of our teachers. She had tremendous suffering in her life, and her faith had to be commensurate to match that suffering in order to really get through it and to go beyond it. It said that she was quite astonishing in her meditative capabilities. She could do things at the level of you know, her concentration that um, 
are kind of beyond belief for a lot of us. And yeah, I, I hear it said that she could walk through walls. I heard stories directly from Manindra that he wouldn't lie about it. I mean, he was her teacher, that she could do things like she could go from one place to another just by disintegrating her body and reintegrating her body someplace else. She was a housewife and she was going to take courses at a local college or university in Pali and the Abhidhamma. And um, she had a lot of work to do in her house. So uh, she didn't want to go take the bus. This is the way Manindraji explained it to me. It would take a long time to walk there and to wait there. And she would have to do the dishes. I mean, it was just very ordinary stuff that he matched it with, you know. And so I could relate to that. And he said that she just wanted to get there. And so she, she would just disintegrate the body and get there. Of course, that isn't the, the mark of a, a, a real, realized being. That's a, the mark of deep concentration. That isn't the goal of practice, but she was able to do that. And Manindra said, don't do that. That will take away your power to really go more deeply because you'll get attached to that. So she stopped doing that, but she said, uh, he said that what she started to do was just to stay home and to, and to open that, that listening ear that can listen to things far away. So she would be at the, at the class just by listening, but she wouldn't go with her body. Well, okay, I don't know if I believe that, but it isn't necessary to believe that. What I do believe was that her heart and mind were more and more liberated through her practice, that she was more and more free from greed and hatred and delusion, that she was a, uh, such a loving, loving being. And I, I wasn't, I guess I wasn't destined to really meet her, but I just heard so many firsthand stories about her. She was actually um, supposed to come and, and stay with, with my family for a few months, but she died just before then. And I, I, I felt like I had a closeness to her. Because one thing that her practice taught me, being a housewife, was that I got in my mind, in my heart, that if she can do it, I can do it. And so there was, there's no doubt in my own mind about uh, liberation, the possibility of liberation. So, in terms of faith and the teachings, one of the most basic places to look for to relate to your own faith and the teachings is the Four Noble Truths. And to see if you have faith in the Four Noble Truths. That's, a, that's the, the teaching to set your um, just relationship with in terms of seeing how much faith you have. The first noble truth is, in Pali, it's called dukkha sacha, which means there is the truth of suffering. And can you have faith in that? Can you really believe that that's true? It's said that the proximate cause for faith to arise is to really see suffering. Proximate cause for faith to arise is to see suffering. And that's a lot of what we do in our practice here, is to open to that 
into our hearts, into our own hearts, into the hearts of others. It's usually what brings us to practice. And the second truth to be discovered is that there is a cause of that suffering. And when we investigate, which is what the the practice asks us to do, to investigate this truth, is we see that the cause of suffering is clinging and attachment. That becomes evident in our practice. The third noble truth is that there is an end to suffering. And that is when there is an end to clinging. We actually realize this in very small and deep ways when we see that there are times when we're holding on to something, especially identification around a sense of self to something, and then we lose that identification. We lose that sense of, I'm helpless, because we see that helplessness is just coming and going. And in that moment when that letting go is there, we see there's freedom there. We see that over and over again with each experience and in the final way when the mind enters into the unconditioned. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path to the end of suffering. And this uh, fourth noble truth is actually the eightfold noble path. And we see that it's developed by developing sila, living in harmony with our own hearts and with others around us, by developing concentration and mindful awareness, samadhi, by developing wisdom, seeing things as they really are and actually living in alignment with that. So we come to realize just how much faith we have in the teachings, really, when we look at the Four Noble Truths. And this is what we're on, this path, the Eightfold Noble Path, actually leading us more deeply into understanding the Four Noble Truths. There's great peace and harmony that we win, that we open to within ourselves. A connection with the world we live in that gives us a kind of fulfillment as a human being that we need to have in order to let go. Our faith deepens, and we continue to seek out deeper faith. So i just like to uh, end with this: these four things that we can seek out in our practice. Of all the numbers, you know, the five of this and the seven of that and the two of this. Faith seeks out special qualities of virtue. When we see the virtue in others, we want to emulate them. We want to be around them. We want to uh, feel strengthened by them, to have them mirrored so we see ourselves in, in their eyes. Faith seeks out the cultivation of generosity. 
this is a virtue, one of those virtues. Faith seeks out good friends. It seeks out hearing the Dhamma. It seeks out experience that ins- experiences that inspire trust. So during this time of your practice here, see which one of those things is important to you, or maybe all of them. See if you can carry them out in your life. The more faith you have, the more ability you will have to go through that terrain that's difficult to go through and to experience the joy of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.